a woman brought in her two children to ask for help, financial assistance, living in their car, needed money for food and gas. Her voice was flat and lifeless. Her speech was practiced. She had that hunted look of an abused woman. But we'd had a lot of transients already come by that month. And my assistance fund was completely empty. So I tried to explain that to her and suggested she try a church just up the street. Now, when I left the church a little while later, the car was still parked outside, and her husband, she, she hadn't mentioned him at all, but her husband leapt out and he charged toward me. He was a big, stocky guy, muscular, but he had the bloodshot eyes and the cocky attitude of a drinker. You call yourself a Christian, he shouted, and he railed on about hypocrites. His jaw was set, his fists were clenched, like he wanted to hit me. He smelled of liquor. A violent drinker, spouse abuser, a bully, he demands money for his children. What? To spend it on his alcohol? He presumes to lecture me about Christian compassion and charity. He thinks to intimidate or manipulate me with guilt or coerce me in some way, humiliate me in public. I really felt for his wife and kids. Him, perhaps I should have been more compassionate, but just another user. Every pastor, every charity worker has seen them, users. Users who manipulate you to try and get something. There may be addicts, borderline personalities, swindlers, sometimes someone who's just too undisciplined or irresponsible or lazy who sponge off everybody else. I don't quite get it. I look to, at sometimes at the lengths that people will go to to try and, and coax money out of other people, and it seems to me it's, it's a whole lot more, more work than a re regular job. Too much work for me. They'll, de they'll deceive, they'll lie, they'll argue, try to shame you. Or maybe they'll whine with a sob story that just gets bigger and bigger the longer you hesitate. 
They make you feel uneasy or angry. It's a surefire indication that you're being used. Now, don't misunderstand me. There are a lot of folks out there with genuine needs. I've been there, needy at times in my life, and I'm glad to help out people with genuine needs. But it troubles me doubly when I give anything to a user because I could have given it to someone else who really needed it. Users are not always after money. Oh, for example, they might oh, pressure you or deceive you to try and get you to do the wrong thing so that they'll simply feel better about themselves or they use the church to enhance their own prestige and reputation in the community. Or maybe to get free childcare. Or to promote some political or social agenda. And it doesn't matter whether it's a conservative or a liberal one because <laughs> You can always find a church somewhere, somewhere that will lend itself to your pet cause. Just is. I've known bullies who abuse churches or church folk for self-validation, to make themselves feel powerful, especially if they're feeling powerless in other areas of their own life. Anytime, anytime, it's not really simply about worshiping Jesus and serving others and legitimate, genuine needs, then somebody is using the church for selfish ends. Now, Nehemiah describes a user in his diary. And let's look at Nehemiah chapter 12. We'll start at the end of chapter 12, that's in verse 44 to 47, and then we'll go on to chapter 13, the verses 1 through 9. And at the beginning, Nehemiah provides a little bit of context here. On that day, this is looking back, on that day, men were appointed over the chambers for the stores the contributions, the first fruits and the tithes, to gather into them the portions required by the law for the priests and for the Levites from the fields belonging to the towns. For Judah rejoiced over the priests and the Levites who ministered. They performed the service of their God and the service of purification, as did the singers and the gatekeepers according to the command of David and his son Solomon. 
For in the days of David and Asaph, long ago, there was a leader of the singers, and there were songs of praise and thanksgiving to God. Now in the days of Zerubbabel, and in the days of Nehemiah, all Israel gave the daily portions for the singers and the gatekeepers. They set apart that which was for the Levites, and the Levites set apart that which was for the descendants of Aaron. On that day, they read from the book of Moses in the hearing of the people, and in it was found written that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever enter the assembly of God, because they did not meet the Israelites with bread and water, but hired Balaam against them to curse them. And yet our God turned the curse into a blessing. And when the people heard the law, they separated from Israel all those of foreign descent, meaning specifically Ammonite or Moabite. Now, before this, keep that in mind. Now, before this, the priest Eliashib, who was appointed over the chambers of the house of our God, and who was related to Tobiah, prepared for Tobiah a large room where they had previously put the grain offering, the frankincense, the vessels, and the tithes of grain, wine, and oil, which were given by commandment to the Levites, singers, and the gatekeepers, and the contributions for the priests. Now, while this was taking place, I, Nehemiah, I was not in Jerusalem for in the 32nd year of King Artaxerxes of Babylon, I went to the king. And after some time, I asked leave of the king and returned to Jerusalem. I then discovered the wrong that Eliashib had done on behalf of Tobiah, preparing a room for him in the courts of the house of God. And I was very angry. And I threw out all the household furniture of Tobiah out of the room. And then I gave orders, and they cleansed the chambers, and I brought back the vessels of the house of God with the grain offering and the frankincense. I also found out that the portions of the Levites had not been given to them, so that the Levites and the singers who had conducted the service had gone back to their fields. So I remonstrated with the officials and said, why is the house of God forsaken? And I gathered them, that is the Levites, together and set them in their stations. And then all Judah brought the tithe of the grain, the wine, and the oil into the storehouses. And I appointed as treasurers over the storehouses the priest Shelemiah, the scribe Zadok, and Padiah of the Levites, and as their assistant, Hanan, son of Zakur, son of Matatnia, for they were considered faithful, and their duty was to distribute to their associates. Remember me, O my God, concerning this, and do not wipe out my good deeds that I have done for the house of my God and for his servants. May God bless to us this reading. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Now, God pulled some strings, sending Nehemiah to Jerusalem by the king of Persia 
to rebuild its walls and gates. By the way, if you ever have any questions, is God in control, remember how God can just pull some strings on the mighty Xerxes, king of Persia, to do what he wants to do. And of course, the king thinks he's doing it, right? But no, there's a power higher and greater that raises kings up and sets them down and does as he wills with them. But Nehemiah goes to Jerusalem, kept a diary of his progress, and that forms the framework of the biblical book of Nehemiah that we've been looking at for the last few weeks. Now, Nehemiah was so principled and successful that he was made district governor. That was usually a 12-year term. And when Nehemiah returns to the king to make his report, he is then reappointed to a second term. And back he goes to Jerusalem, and that's when this particular episode that we're looking at occurs. Now, the first half of Nehemiah's diary is in chronological order. The second half is not in order. The wall is finished. Let me explain, give you some examples. The wall is finished in chapter 6, but we don't actually hear about the dedication celebration crowning its completion until chapter 12. Now, I don't know a single preacher or administrator who finishes a project like that who's going to wait some 12 years to do the dedication service. We're not that patient. We want to celebrate it now, and I'm sure they did. But we don't hear about it for six chapters. That's okay. Nehemiah, we read, is planning to expand the city population in chapter 7, but we don't read about it actually being carried out till chapter 11. There are ominous rumblings about his enemy, Tobiah, in chapter 6, but we aren't told where this was going until our reading here in chapter 13. And even this begins as an afterthought. Oh, oh yeah, uh, before this, such and such happened. Now, I can relate to this because I find myself doing this more and more often as I get older. Um, just saying. So all of this, just, just be aware when you're reading Nehemiah, the second half is not in order. That's okay, because he's not having to report on that part, right? His report was on the first section. So, so but when we try to kind of connect the dots, it, it appears that the events that he's describing actually unfolded in this way. 
once the construction is completed and the gates and the gatekeepers are all in place and the wall then the walls get dedicated and the temple staff appointed and we read then in chapter 7 how Nehemiah puts his brother Hanani in charge of Jerusalem and instructs him when to open and close the city gates. And he specifically says it's because he had not yet carried out his plan to repopulate the city. The problem with the population is if you're going to defend a wall, you have to have a certain number of people, right? And if you don't have enough people living in the city, you can't actually defend the wall very well. So they're trying to figure out how to optimize the defenses till they can increase the population to be sufficient. So, but that was kind of interrupted in the middle there because Nehemiah had to leave before he could finish expanding the population of the city. So then Ezra's marathon public reading of scripture, the resulting revival, the renewal of the covenant service that we've talked about for the last four weeks there in chapters 8 through 10, had to have happened just before Nehemiah left. And I say that because one of the things that the Israelites there swore to God at that ceremony was at long last, after years of neglect, to finally bring in the tithes and the offerings so the temple staff could go back to serving full time. And the storerooms get cleaned out to receive those offerings, and some men are appointed to be in charge of that, and one of those we find out is named Eliashib. Now, this is not the same Eliashib, or we don't think it's the same Eliashib who was high priest. But he's appointed to receive and distribute the contributions. So before Nehemiah actually leaves, the worship leaders, the choir, the orchestra are again leading worship at every service for the first time in many, many years. So Nehemiah then goes, and the city of God enters an interim period. They're under temporary leadership. We don't know for how long Nehemiah says, you know, after a while. It was a while. So, transitional pastor, uh, excuse me, governor, <laughs> Hanani, he needs to be principled and firm. When You see, when a pastor leaves, or a leader, any leader, but when a pastor leaves, the congregation gets anxious, maybe a little antsy. And that's when emotionally sensitive or susceptible members start acting out the anxiety of the group. It's a normal thing. 
And that's also when folks that are more on the fringe with any personal agenda begin to exploit the power vacuum as they perceive it. And that's when users and parasites try to slip in to take advantage of you. You know, when the cat's away. Now, when Nehemiah gets back to Jerusalem, he finds that in his absence, Brother Hanani has not been principled and firm. Eliashib, treasurer and paymaster for the temple offerings, has appropriated some rooms. I don't know if you noticed it or realized it, but if you read it carefully, you'll, you'll discover he has taken the very, the very storerooms that had been cleared out to house the donations for the temple staff. And he does it to set up a cozy apartment for his kinsman, Tobiah. Now, I feel for Eliashib because, you see, he is caught between duty and family. Caught between duty and family. And he's probably one who's also in the name of family or in the name of love and affection or relationship or whatever who feels a certain obligation to accommodate the requests of others. We very often confuse compassion and what we call enabling. Enabling is when you go out of your way to help people who really shouldn't need help and they have to get become responsible about their lives and how they live their lives, but they never have to because everybody else is picking up the, all the details and the trim for them. You know, the classic story about a man who goes out, gets drunk, comes in, he's sick to his stomach, he passes out in the front yard, and his wife goes out, drags him into the house, cleans him up, puts him to bed, and he wake, and can wake up the next morning in bed as if nothing went wrong and nothing happened, and so he can keep on doing it because there's never consequences. That is enabling. Compassion is very different. Compassion feels for the person's need but looks beyond the surface to see the real need. I'll leave it at that. But so Eliashib is here. He's stuck between his duty as paymaster and his connection and his feelings of obligation to family. Now, a church I had served once had been taken over by a user who got her sense of worth by controlling and domineering others. Now, after 16 months of, and much headbutting and enduring a lot of abuse, I was fired. Thank God. 
But as I was packing up to leave, one of the elders came in and he apologized. He said, Pastor, please don't be bitter toward us. I know it wasn't right what happened to you and the way you were treated. But you have to understand, pastors come and go, but she's family. We have to deal with her all the time. So Eliashib gives in to this user, Tobiah, because he is, after all, family. But that doesn't change the fact that he is a user. Tobiah was district governor of Ammon across the Jordan. He was Nehemiah's enemy. He had accused him of fomenting rebellion. He had ridiculed him and his volunteers. He had been one of the ones planning to mount an attack and disrupt the construction on the wall. He was the one who paid off one of the prophets in Jerusalem to try to frighten Nehemiah into hiding, and hiding where he wasn't supposed to go. And Tobiah regularly is sending him intimidating letters. But Tobiah was family. He was family. He was related on his mother's side to Eliashib. Tobiah had also married the daughter of Shekaniah, who was one of the jo Jewish nobility. And his son married the daughter of Meshulam, another of Jerusalem's leading citizens. He's not a Jew, but he is still one of the, he has sort of ingratiated himself into Jerusalem society until he's one of the good old boys with a network of informants who owe him favors. Now, Tobiah now connives for special privileges. An apartment in town, and not just in town, but within the temple, so he can intrigue and agitate right under Nehemiah's nose. You see, Tobiah is doing everything he can to keep the city of God defenseless and the people of God dispirited and weak so he can use the church to satisfy his own appetite for power and domination. But then, it shouldn't surprise us, the devil always tries to worm his way into the church because, you see, he's a user too. Now, this is, having to be a right there in the temple is not only politically awkward, it is an affront to God. Tobiah is an Ammonite. He's from Ammon, across the, the river. He's an Ammonite. The Ammonites and the Jews had had a long history of bad blood. The Ammonites had once opposed and cursed the Hebrews when they were desert nomads. 
and it was his Ammonite wife who mis misled Solomon into practicing idolatry. She was an Ammonite. So as a priest, Eliashib knew better than this. He knew better. Deuteronomy, the book of Deuteronomy in chapter 23, starting at verse 3, it forbid any Ammonite to ever enter the temple. It says, no Ammonite or Moabite shall be admitted to the assembly of the Lord. Even to the tenth generation, none of their descendants shall be admitted to the assembly of the Lord. You shall never promote their welfare or their prosperity as long as you live. And yet, here is Tobiah the Ammonite with his own furnished apartment inside the temple complex. It's about as inappropriate as building a mosque next to Ground Zero in New York. Just saying. Now, Nehemiah, Nehemiah realizes what's happening, so he drags the furniture to the curb. Puts it out by the curb, you know, that's so that the, and I bet the trash man, did, not a single trash man saw a piece of it. It just, I'm sure. Drags it out to the curb. He sends in the fumigators to, to uh, disinfect the place. Even worse, he discovers that ever since those storerooms were misappropriated, the priests and the musicians haven't been getting paychecks. That's what those rooms were meant for. And they had to give up the ministry and go back to their fields, find other work. The pastors and the worship leaders, they were paying the price for this user who wasn't even a member to exploit the church for his own little power grab. So Nehemiah kicks Tobiah out, fires Eliashib, appoints a new finance committee who are considered faithful as opposed to the old ones. And he brings back the choir, he fills the temple with song once more. You'll find users in the New Testament too in the book of Acts, in the New Testament, Luke tells us about a married couple who conspire to commit fraud. They hatch a plot to sell their house and supposedly donate all of the proceeds to the church to help take care of the poor. You see, they want to be celebrated for great generosity and faith. You know, some of the church's real heroes. Shoot, you'd read articles about them in Charisma magazine. <laughs> Maybe some interviews on radio if they had had radio then. 
And as an implication, then, the church is going to assume responsibility to house and feed them for the rest of their lives. But secretly, they're hedging their bets. Just in case this Jesus thing doesn't pan out. They keep part of the purchase price back, tucked away in savings. They make a pretense of generosity so they can live off of the generosity of others. You see, they're egotistical users. The Apostle Paul, another example, writes in 2 Corinthians, to combat a clique of charismatic super-apostles who travel from church to church, bragging on their healings, their visions, their revelations, in order to get contributions. They insult, even physically assault, and publicly humiliate their critics to silence any opposition so they can continue their scam. They're all about posturing, and self-promotion. Not that we know any evangelists like that. But Paul warns their users. Now, Nehemiah, he fires Eliashib and throws out to be his furniture. Paul blasts these so-called super apostles in his letter. Peter knows by the Holy Spirit that Ananias and Sapphira are defrauding God, and he declares God's judgment upon them, and they drop dead on the spot. I think we can conclude, biblically, that God does not like users. Is that a reasonable conclusion from the breadth of scripture I think so God does not like it when people pretend generosity so they can abuse the generosity of others who pretend faith but don't actually trust him or anyone else who make a noise of great faith but they have no servant's heart God does not like it when people nest in the proximity of the holy, but actually disdain or hate or even oppose God or the city of God or the people of God. God does not like it when you or I try to use God or the church building or church people for our own personal selfish end. Now, there can be redemption for users because there can be redemption for anyone, but only on the other side of confession and sincere repentance and transformation through the Spirit of God. God takes his church and his saints very seriously and judging by the story of Ananias and Sapphira he takes it deadly seriously now every church has its tobias 
Sometimes they're church members. Sometimes they're not. But they have their connections inside who report to them and do their bidding. Regardless, they don't really have a heart for the things of God. They don't have true faith in Jesus Christ. There's no love for the people of God. There's no servant's heart. It's all pretense. It's all about me, my needs, my wants, my reputation, my power, my privileges, my way. They use you and me for their own wants and egos. And if they can, like Tabea, they'll put themselves right in the middle of things. And when you realize what's been going on, you do feel used. Now God will guard his own honor and will protect his church. Raising up a Nehemiah to break the hold that users can get over his church. That domineering elder I mentioned, the rest of the story, emboldened by getting me fired, she began flexing her muscles even more aggressively in different groups and circles in the church. But the congregation, having seen what was done to me, they realized where this was leading and they revolted. And week by week as she tried to stretch her control and her domination, instead she was ejected one by one from every group she had been controlling until she got in a huff and stormed out of the church and never came back. And the church was at peace. You see, God can use even a so-called failed pastorate to bring healing to a church. an important lesson. When the disciples were arguing among themselves over who, over their status uh, or their supremacy, Jesus reminded them, he said, this is in Matthew 20, he says, the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their great ones are tyrants over them. It will not be so among you but whoever wishes to be great among you must be your servant. The word is slave. And whoever wishes to be first among you must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Matthew 20, 25, by the way. You see, a servant's heart will not manipulate, abuse, or exploit others for egotistical purposes. You know, Jesus even likened you and me to a paymaster. You wonder why he did that? He knew this story in Nehemiah. And he likened you and me to a paymaster. If we are, this is in Matthew 24, 45 following, he says, if we are faithful and wise, 
and diligent in our assigned duties, we will be blessed. But if we think like Eliashib, neglect or abuse our fellow servants for selfish ends, we will be, he says, cut off. That's not a good thing. And then, to underscore this, Jesus willingly went to the cross, the self-giving servant of God, to gain a redemption for you and me that we can hardly grasp and never adequately appreciate. Jesus has to warn not his enemies, but his very disciples. He has to warn his disciples against the pull of becoming a user. We can't just point at others because we all are at risk. The challenge to you and me, then, is to search our own hearts and our own motives. Where, where have I acted in my own interests? Not in the interests of my Lord or of my brothers and sisters in the faith. Where have we used the church in any way for personal ends to stroke our own egos? Have you ever tried to use God, to use the Bible, or to manipulate him with your sob story or to wave Bible promises at him in order to guilt trip God into answering your prayer in some particular way like you want it? Just a word of warning, it doesn't work. It doesn't work. You see, there's a bit of Tabea in all of us. You know, the inner user. God will cleanse his temple, whether it's the church as the temple of the Holy Spirit or the human heart, which he also called the temple of the Holy Spirit. So drag all that furniture of self and ego to the curb. Scrub out that residue of sin to be a fitting, fit dwelling place for an almighty and a holy God. Let God use you, your, his storeroom, you, for the purpose he originally intended for you. You know, and like in Nehemiah's day, it might even put a song back in your heart. Let's pray. Lord, your church around the world is struggling with users. We run into them all the time, and sometimes they're among us, and sometimes they are us. Have mercy upon us, Lord. Let us hear the clear voice of your spirit. Let us know 
how to respond to each need and to be self-critical of our own supposed needs to know what's legitimate and what's not, what's your guidance and what's not. Because, Lord, we want, above all, to be faithful servants and to accomplish your glory in everything we do and say, both individually and as a church of Jesus Christ. Lord, we pray it in his name. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen.